This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with the late Rabbi David Hartman. He was founder of the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. I spoke with him at his office there on March 13, 2011. You can download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. You know, Charlie is the greatest editor in the world. I mean that. Is that right? I worked with him in my new book. He was marvelous. He was really a study partner. It's a great book. It's an important book. Yeah. You you got it? Did mm-hmm. you see it? I got it. it. I did. I did. We got uh, we got an advance copy because it hasn't been published yet, has it? No. We got an advance copy from the publisher. Yossi had also sent it to me in an email, but anyway, we got it. Yeah. Oh, you mm-hmm. enjoyed it? Uh-huh. It's a good book. Hmm. They say, finally, Hartman came out of the closet. <laughs> I never knew I was in it. How <laughs> are we? Closets in Jerusalem. Yeah, right. <laughs> Very profound, Charlie. In my father's house are many closets. Okay. So you right. people are from national? We're, yes, public, U.S. public radio. U.S. public radio. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I once did something for them with an Islamic scholar. I don't know what they ever did with it. I was in Jatagwa. Oh. And then uh, this, there was this Islamic guy, and he wanted to know how he can build the Shalom Hamad Institute in Islam. Mm-hmm. That's what Chappelle, David Chappelle, when he was a New York Times reporter. Right, right. Did that Islamic Hartman Institute ever happen? No, it never no. happened. It's a good idea. So let's um, let's but just But that begin. was the idea. Yeah. You know? The good thing is we get to have a real conversation. We will edit it later to fit into the radio hour. But um, I have some notes, but if you... We'll, we'll see where this goes. And go it doesn't have to be linear. If you decide you want to go back to something, we can go back no, to something. No, no, okay. But where I'd like to start is truly at the beginning for, of you... Um, were you raised in an Orthodox family? Yes. So this has been your tradition all your life? No, I've been... I was brought up in a very Hasidic family. And they went to Orthodox schools. I was a nice religious boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Until I began to read. <laughs> <laughs> and that all changed. <laughs> what did you read that changed you? William James. John Dewey, American Pragmatism. They grabbed me. Also, Peter Berger Mm. and Brown. And how, how how did those kinds of writers start to change your Jewish sensibility? No, you see, I was already moving away from conventional... Orthodoxy. I wasn't satisfied with the answers. And with William James, I I met a finite God, which was a pleasure. So God was limited. Because if I looked at the world, I mean, he's sure it's not omnipotent. Because if that's what he, his power is, then he's sure is a very weak God. So in other words, I could never build a theology 
ignoring the lived reality. I always, in my own crazy way, I would go through, when it was a plane crash or a car crash, and I'm told that there was a bride and groom on the plane. And I pictured what was their conversation. Where are we going to live? How many children do you think we should have? And then planning and thinking. Then snaff, snafu. It's like laughing at human beings' attempt to take life seriously. Either God has a sense of humor or he's not there. Hmm. So I was struggling always. I mean, that's why in my latest book, I mean, he's there and not there. We want him to be there. But our wanting him to be there doesn't make him being there. Mm-hmm. So in some way, we have to develop new metaphors, new images of how we think about God. It's not enough to say Judaism is the religion of the law. We have the law. So we know what we're supposed to do. That doesn't work for me. Because if the law doesn't point to a God, then what is it all about? You know, you wrote in, uh, you were a, a congregational rabbi for 16 years, is that right, before you came to Israel in Montreal? Um, I believe this is from your new book, uh, um, The God Who Hates Lies. You, you wrote one recurring theme as a rabbi was the agonizing confrontation that occurred when religious demands were felt to conflict with deeply held rational commitments and ethical intuitions. I mean, is that, or is that pointing at what you're describing here in terms of how religious ideas meet real life? And I mean, what do you mean? What would be an example? In other words, I can't say God is merciful and then look at Auschwitz. You know, I can't see tragedy, pain, suffering... You know, one of my best friends now, I just get a call. He's operated for cancer. One of the most nicest people in Israel. So I don't know. Uh-huh. And life is so suspended in... I said either God was bored after he created the world and he created human beings to have fun. I don't know. I don't know why I'm religious. And w- was that kind of searching... Uh, part of your motivation for moving to Israel? Well, it was, beca- it, it was one of them, but the real motive was because I felt that something very important was going to be emerging from this reality. I lied to myself. <laughs> when people ask me, how come I came in Aliyah? I said I was the only person in my congregation who listened to my own sermons. <laughs> so I inspired myself and I met the lived reality of the Jewish people coming home, which is not a very pleasant experience. Well, I mean, say some more of that. I mean, here's some, again, you wrote that you, at that time, spoke excitedly about the religious significance of a society not only shaped by the Jewish people or even a Jewish ethos in a general sense, but organized politically around the creative, contemporary application of biblical and rabbinic categories of social justice. And then... You encountered the reality of <laughs> life, right? Right. And the human condition. Yes, like you wake up in the morning, you hear that a family were murdered. So how, how do you live with that? Mm-hmm. You know, 
And Israelis just want the world to say, we feel your pain. They're so hungry for acknowledgement. They're so hungry for human responses to them that they just wait for the world to say, we understand it's a difficult job. Mm. Palestinians are not an easy people. But it's a... See, I felt that Jews entered history now, affected by the totality of life, economics, politics, medical ethics. In other words, Judaism was not going to be a religion of the synagogue or the kosher home or kosher bakeries. It was going to be the system labor of, uh, of the lived reality of people in business, in violence, in... I remember the, who were that, the Quakers coming to see me. They wanted to know about my views of power, you know, Quakers. Mm -hmm. So I said, if you have power, you can have a moral argument. If you're powerless, there's no moral argument. So if we want to engage the Palestinians in a moral argument of how to live together, then we can only negotiate if we're strong. So I have no difficulty, even though I'm not a militant person, I have no difficulty of, of Israel being strong because I feel strength invites discussion. Mm. Weakness invites manipulation. Mm. Mm. You know, if you ask people for a favor... Then you're in bad shape. <laughs> so you know, Kristen, yes. Okay. Okay. You want to get the pearls of wisdom of yes. Hartman? <laughs> okay. So you ready, Chris? Okay. So much of your writing, and certainly this latest book you've written. The God Who Hates Lies is really engaging. It's an intra-Jewish conversation that you are uh, aspiring for, leading, provoking, um, and it's it's a it, 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 it's provocative and critical, but from a perspective of loving and living deeply inside the tradition. Um, and so, you know, and I think that's a really I'd like for us to talk about that, and but be aware of the fact that um, that people who are listening, say my listeners in the United States, aren't don't know the dynamics of this internal conversation. And also, I think when Jews are critical of each other, when this critical Israeli conversation is transmitted, um, that loving and living in the depths piece of it is lost. So I'm just wondering if we can kind of go inside that that conversation that you're part of. Yeah, um, well, I, that's... You see, I see my identity as deeply tied to a family. I'm very deeply Jewish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my mannerisms, whatever it may be. I mean, I was brought up with Jewish music. My father, the institute was called after him. Mm. He was very poor, but... He celebrated the Shabbat with joy. So I have deep memories, Jewishly, 
So I have never had the desire to leave. I had the desire that it should be better. So my criticism grows from love. Mm-hmm. It's like I was once told, don't be critical as your mother-in-law who enjoys to find out things that are lacking in you. <laughs> right. But be critical out of compassion, out of real love for what you think the people could be. And as I suffer that, because on one level I want to feel empathy, intimacy with this people, with its history, with its longing, and I know its vulnerabilities, its weaknesses, its psychological problems of wanting to be loved. They, they want so much to be loved. And it's not working. And they don't know why does the world hate them. What do we do? So they used to say it's Christ killers. Now it's not that. It's much deeper. And and Israelis have a very great difficulty. And I feel with them if I, mm-hmm. I embrace them because I know I'm never critical of them publicly. You know, because I, Nebuch, it's like a Nebuch child, if you know Yiddish. Nebuch, you know, well, it's pity. <laughs> I pity Jews sometimes. And on a certain level, Jews are very aggressive and powerful and intellectually. But deep down, they are very frightened. I often describe the Jewish condition as fiddler on the roof with an F-16. <laughs> you know, and I wonder if your uh, perspective as a, or if the sensibility you bring to this as a philosopher also, I mean, because really what you're talking about is the human condition, the difficulty of the human condition, then in the context of this difficult national and religious identity. Well, that's the, the human condition is caught between two poles. I'm part of the world, and I'm separate from the world. I'm a member of a family that is not typical of the world, and yet I want to embrace all of humanity. Because to me, the idea of God creates the widest range of empathy for human beings. Beloved is man created in the image of God. Now, on that level, another, but I believe philosophy is becomes true when it's anchored in the intimacy of your life. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it becomes verbal. Right. I have no respect for, you know, universalist bullshit. I mean, I... No, but that existential uh, focus of philosophy. I, I, I think within the concrete. Mm-hmm. That's what James and Dewey did for me. Mm. It's, what's the cash value of an idea? And I remember my students saying to me, Rabbi Hartman, I want you to know, but don't get upset with me. I became an atheist. I said, when did you become an atheist? He said, Wednesday. <laughs> oh, boy, that's a remarkable thing. What were your Tuesday? You were a believer, right? And what happened on Thursday? I said, is there any difference between the way you lived when you were a believer and when you became an atheist. And that's the criterion for me. Mm. How in the concrete, in the lived relationship with people, 
do your ideas live? You know, I'm chair philosophers. I have no patience with that. I'm, over, I'm close to 80. I'm not a young man anymore, and I just don't have any patience for verbal abstractions. But this notion of God consciousness is something you write about. I mean, that's something I sense. I mean, part of your critique of Judaism or your spiritual evolution is God consciousness. So talk to me about how that, for you, is real and rooted in the concrete. Well, to me... What does that mean? What does that look... What does God consciousness look like when it's rooted in a concrete? Well, that's what happened when... That was the response of the people, in my view, the the Talmudic worldview was a God who left history. The Bible has God involved in the life of this people. He's in, he's in the action. But then he's just disappeared. So the, so the tradition had to deal with some way of keeping him alive. Because nothing in the events of history mirror his living presence. So that's halacha for me. Halacha is a way of life in which God is mediated by the concrete performances of mitzvot. So in other words, it's in the action, mm-hmm. spiritually, in the consciousness of God. And the God consciousness is always ask yourself to what degree is what you're doing pleasing to the God you want to worship. Because I believe there are many gods. As Buba said, the imageless God has many images. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, I, I'm trying to construct alternative metaphors so that people should not be just obsessive legalists. So, so for example, I mean, this is resonant for me with your daughter, um, Tova. Tova, is part of what some people call the Orthodox feminist revolution. Some language you used about that, about your, how your thinking changed towards this, towards the thinking about women in Judaism, you said was when you realized she was not merely fighting for women's rights, but for an honest, authentic Judaism, that this Correct. was not about women, right. but about the type of God you could worship. Correct. In other words, I, Tova once said to me, Abba, the problem with women in Judaism is not a woman's problem. It's your problem. It's the Judaism that you want to be committed to. Now, do you want to be committed to a Judaism in which the woman is not a person? She could be a great surgeon during the week in Hadassah. She comes to shul. She's not part of the minion. She's not part of the quorum. I remember a rabbi calling me. He says, David, what should I do? I, I, I come to the shul in the morning, and some people have to say Kaddish which is, requires a quorum of 10 men. And he says, well, I only get nine. And I get seven women. I say, but you're supposed to say Kaddish for 10 people. Will you please count again your morning minion? Are there 10 people there? Yeah, but they're women. <laughs> I know, but don't, don't you think a woman is a person? Mm. And when orthodoxy denies the personhood, it commits spiritual suicide. It is blind to the human condition, to the dignity of human beings. I can't see a Judaism that flourishes and considers the woman in a second-rate 
very limited legal powers, etc. And this is a discussion you're having within Orthodox Judaism Correct. in Israel. This is a discussion I'm having for the Jewish world. I want to affect Jews. That's the family. <laughs> you want to have a nice family. And the way they understand women, they're an ugly family. Triumphalist, racist. Once I became aware of the depth, and I'm grateful to Tova mm -hmm. for educating me, because she's a real expert in gender studies. Once it hit me, I couldn't accept all the apologetics. That's the chapter, God Hates Lies. Mm -hmm. All the apologetics of women being naturally pure so they don't need the commandments. Women being individualists so they can't become part of a collective. I mean, a whole bunch of lies. And that's what I felt, God hates lies. Admit that you can't handle women having an active role in Judaism. It's like your pub. You're taking me, you're taking me away from the, the pub, which is where we, we, we and the boys get together. Right. And of course, this is not just a Jewish phenomenon. I know. We have, this is, there are aspects of Christianity, of all the traditions that have this. So, um, does, and, and you know this tradition, you know it in its depths, you know its texts and its teachings. I mean, does Orthodox Judaism have the capacity to make this transition? Yes. As a tradition? One of the things that I wrote a chapter in my book, A Heart of Many Rooms, Judaism as an interpretive tradition. Now, there's Judaism, there's a Mishnah, very important Mishnah, in the Talmud, which says that if a person commits a sin, which his punishment should be extinction, karet, and if he gets makot, if he gets a 39 lashes, he's freed from karet. So the Talmud says, how do you know? How do you know that God is not going to do that? This is a punishment that comes from God. So they say, well, look, let me tell you about three laws. How did we know those new laws? We explained it through interpreting sentences. So what did we do? We interpret the sentences and we decide what God does. So suddenly, interpretation is not just for sake of the law. It's to define the reality of the religious world. Mm -hmm. Who is God? Well, who, it depends who God on, is, right? Who is God? Mm -hmm. Depends on how you interpret. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring God back into the interpretive tradition. Because people will say, Hartman is talking about God so much. What happened to him? What's this <laughs> God intoxicated stuff? They'll get scared. No one's going to want to read Hartman anymore. So what I'm saying is, I want a God-intoxicated halacha. I want to have God in all aspects of reality. And to have that consciousness that you're, you're living in the presence of God should define your moral action. In other words, I don't need legalisms mm. to, to bring about changes. Mm. Mm. Okay. You got that? In other words, mm -hmm. I don't need this legal... Mm -hmm. 
shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Um, Another, I want to bring the person in existential confrontation with with the God consciousness. And then I think you're saying that the legalisms then must be reconstructed, reinterpreted. Correct. According, in accordance with that, rather than the other way around. That's correct. That, rather than that we interpret God by way of the legalisms. This is, uh, I'm a mother, too. I have two children. And uh, I, 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 love this. I love it that it's your daughter who brought this to you. And I, 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 I've heard other stories of, of this across the years, uh, Christian and J- Jewish stories, you know, p- children who, who force their parents to revisit the teachings. Um, and I just wondered if, I wondered if I thought you, you might have an answer to this, so whether the, d- does, the, does the tradition have teachings about how we should be open to being changed and taught by our children? Well, see, the point the tradition has models of people changing their mind. Mm-hmm. The tradition has models of the vitality of disagreements, that one point of view is not the truth. And the notion of philosophy is not truth, but possibilities. Philosophy opens up windows. It doesn't give you final truths. And I want to have a Judaism that opens up windows. You could breathe. You want to convert to Judaism? Try it. (laughs) Try it. See how it fits you. Walk around in the street, say, I'm Jewish. See how you feel about it. In other words, I'm, I have a great respect for experimentation, the learning from experience, and that what experience could give you, no major work of philosophy can give you. Mm-hmm. I want the human being to be touched by another human being. So as I... Conduct my life of conversation, and as I look at the world, I feel um, that the teach- teachings about the other, how to encounter the other, how to engage the other, how to treat the other, should be, should be, a great gift to the twenty first century. That our Correct. tradition, that we, that the world needs to learn in a whole new way how to live with the other. It seems to me that that you've really engaged with that teaching of the other in Judaism, and that, that that even flowed into your thinking about women and your changing idea about women. Correct. And I wonder how you think about that teaching of the other in terms of the Palestinians, of the, that, of the Palestinian people, and that this, this, uh, this life in Jerusalem and in, in Israel, in the Middle East. That's a pain. That it's could, hard. It's so painful. Sari Nuseba and I had good conversations together. I'm interviewing him two days from now. Y- yes. yes. <laughs> Give him my regards. I will. No, he's a lovely human being. He's the president of Al-Quds University and a Palestinian, yes. leading Palestinian philosopher. I think. Yes, and ask him, why don't they want to change? Why can't they accept that we're here? He wants to. I know he wants to. I don't know. I don't know what they think they're going to get. We're not going to leave this land. We waited too long. And this is the only land that we feel is really our home. So can we share a home? 
And I, I don't want to take away from the dignity of Palestinians. But you can't expect me to commit suicide, so you should feel dignified. In other words, can you adjust to a strong, vibrant people living side by side with you? You haven't gone through the process of accepting that fact. And that's why it looks futile. I mean, I mean, we wake up and, and see what happened to a family stabbed little babies in the night. That was this Nablus incident just this week. What? That was the, in the incident in Nablus, which right. has just happened while we're speaking Just here. now. The, and the whole country mourns this. So there's such a rage. You have to understand. I remember NBC came to see me. They say, we heard that you've, you've changed in your attitude towards the Palestinians. You know, that you've become now militant. So I'm with Tom Broker, who came to see me. I say, it depends what, part, what time of day. In the morning, I hate the Palestinians. Blow the shit out of them. Four hours later, I'm much calmer. I don't want to hurt them. I want to live with them. In other words, I, I'm constantly moved up and back. When my family gets killed and my family is frightened to go to sleep at night, mm-hmm. I get angry. I have a lot of anger in me. But part of my tradition is to learn how to control that anger. And I don't know if they really want to live with me. I'm not certain that there's anything we can do that would make it possible for them to feel we acknowledge their dignity. And and there are other there are other sides of this, right? I mean, we were last night at a dinner with Yossi Klein Halevi, your colleague, and um, some American young journalism students from California. And they had just spent part of the day in East Jerusalem. And they were just observing the uh, the contrast between uh, the 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 economic um, dignity of Palestinian neighborhoods and Israeli neighborhoods, right? And they so they were also so. I mean, this is another side of this. I, I also understand. So the, you know, it's what I what I would like to get a better sense of is there's this dynamic of of a threat, right? And then there's the question of how you apply the teachings of the other to just basic treatment of Palestinian, even citizens of Israel, right? Or, that is I whole pray dynamic. for the well-being of Palestinians. I have no joy at all if a Palestinian suffers. That's not where I am. But I say to them, please... We could really build a very nice society together. Can't you try? Why do you have to feel that there's a... We're trying to Jew you, as they say. Why can't you trust us for a little while? A little while, 20 years. I mean, we could flourish together beautifully. It could be an example to the world about living from with the other. Really living. You're right. But there's Sari Nuseba. Not many more. 
I can't fool myself. I have no other place to go. I lost too many people. German Jews who trusted, you know, German philosophy, who trusted German culture. And I saw what happened. So I don't trust the world. I want to trust the world. I say, Hartman, come on, get it straight. Depends what time of the day you ask me. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When I read in the paper, I say, God, what happened? At three o'clock, mm-hmm. you could speak to me in another language. It's, it's living with this tremendous tense emotions. Right. Love, hate, ambivalence is a phenomenal. Right. right. I want to talk about another, um, you know, just shift gears, another interesting thing that you're bringing about that I've heard about s- senior military officers who are coming here for study. Study. And bringing real world ethical, spiritual questions. And then you're meeting that with the tradition. I love that. I love them. I think for people outside Israel, what would be surprising is how unusual and groundbreaking that is, right? Beg your pardon? I think for people outside Israel who don't, who don't know the dynamics here, that it might be surprising that that's groundbreaking. No, I think this is, for me, my most beautiful experience in Israel. I look at them and I say, you know, you're the true rabbis in Israel. Because you are affecting all your troops. The rabbis, they're not even they're in Jerusalem offices. They have no influence. You have the influence. How did this come about, this, this program? They, they woke up that Israelism and nationalism ain't enough. That can't satisfy the soul of a people. And they, the soldiers themselves say we have to know why we're fighting. What is it about? Why are we connected to this land? Why are we connect- How do we connect ourselves to Jewish history? And they are marvelous. They, the best audience in the world. I mean, I love them. What kinds of questions do they bring? What kinds of, what? What kinds of questions do they bring? What, what do they want to talk about? They want to know, do you accept me as a Jew, even though I'm not observant? Mm. How do you look upon me? I say, you're not secular. But everyone tells me I'm secular. I say, you can't be secular because you're willing to die for the continuity of Jewish history. That's very deeply religious. So immediately there's a certain sense that Okay, I'm inside. I'm not an outsider. Take me on a trip. Mm. Tell me about Abraham. Tell me about Moses. Tell me about Maimonides. Come on, let's walk together. And I'm open to any questions you may have. I mean, they'll ask me, why is it my Russian friend who was here and he got killed? And they didn't know if they could bury him in a Jewish cemetery. So the question they all ask themselves, if they're willing to accept him 
to die for this country, they can't bury him as a Jew. Those, in other words, there's such a disharmony, a fracture between the rabbinic establishment or the so-called public voices of Judaism and what really is true Judaism. And they're looking for true Judaism, something they can love mm. and respect. Mm. It's, it's very beautiful to see. Mm. They want to respect it. Mm. It's not like my congregation in Montreal when I was a rabbi. <laughs> I mean, here it's, a, it's the nicest audience I could speak to mm. because they're so hungry. That's what kills me. I know the country is open to a renaissance of spiritual moral values, and the rabbis kill it. Mm. We have a rabbinate that has absolutely no connection to the people, no understanding of Jewish history, no understanding of the Zionist revolution. I mean, one of the large themes in your thinking and writing is how Jewish sovereignty, how the state of the fact of the state of Israel, in fact, challenges Judaism. What? In fact, that how this how Jewish sovereignty, how the state of Israel is a challenge to Judaism. Absolutely, because it says to you, stop looking at pots and pans, if it's dairy or meat, and kashrut. Take your face out of the pot, and look, look at the society. I give lectures on medical ethics to doctors. That was also a good audience for me. Because doctors have, are very callous many times, Israeli doctors, because they're so smart. Mm. <laughs> so they say, I know what's bothering you, even before you speak. I say, that's remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> and to, in some way, help them understand how they're supposed to treat each other. How the other should be seen by them. So it, not just their patients, but their fellow doctors. Their, their fellow human beings. Mm. Then when, a do, when I go to a doctor and he tells me, what's wrong with you? And I start telling him about my liver. And then he gets a call from Chaim. Hiya, Chaim, what's new? She says, excuse me, you know, don't let my liver get in the way. <laughs> you know, I mean, I try to teach him that when a patient is talking to you, respond to him. Mm-hmm. It's not just diagnosis of a certain medicine. It's the feeling that when he was dependent, he didn't lose his dignity. Because to go to a doctor and to unravel everything that's wrong with you is to expose your vulnerability and your weakness. Mm-hmm. And people lose their dignity when that happens. So how do you handle their dependency upon you? I give lectures on that. Mm. I don't give a lecture on the Sabbath. Right, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like my first sermon that I used to give in the congregation was how a parent should bring up a child how they should look upon the kid when he goes to school and he comes home and he's failing. So I always tell the story of the child who's just, the mother goes to the teacher and they say, your child 
nothing will ever amount to anything. So what do you advise me to do? So when they came to me, I said, leave him alone. Don't ask him if he did his homework. <coughs> Just leave him alone. Let him come home and see his mother, not his policeman. Hmm. So she decided for two months not to bother him with his uh, He started doing very, very well. And she came to complain to me. I said, shouldn't you be happy, Mrs. Cohn, that he's doing so well? She says, no, I'm not needed anymore. Right. He's beginning to be able to feel that he can do his work by himself. So we have to make our children helpless in order to feel needed. Mm. Now, that's not the God I want. That's not the human being I want. That's not the parent I want. And I think this does echo, again, you, you make the point that for understandable reasons, I mean, for very clear reasons, for so much of history, Jews have ended up just defining themselves in terms of, terms of external conditions, right? And, and, and threats and fears and suffering. And you're saying, I mean, this renaissance you're talking about is going inside, right? And, and that the state of Israel also... The state of Israel gives me a whole range of responsibility. Right. And I can't now goof off. I can't blame the Goyim. Can't blame the Gentiles for the world as it is. It's my world. What type of medicine do you have? What type of treatment of the agent? What type of treatment of immigrants? You are now have power, and power has to be measured by responsibility. And a sovereign state gives Jews the opportunity to make Judaism a total way of life that breathes dignity and resp responsiveness to human beings. Hmm. Sovereignty is an instrument for moral excellence. Hmm. And I think you're also saying that, that that the state of Israel is really a new chapter for Jews, even beyond the, the biblical narrative. Correct. Correct. Which does not have Jews in charge of their fate. Right. And that that in fact then you are writing a new chapter of the tradition, that that's part of this responsibility you talked about that may go beyond the bounds of what was possible even to think about or live into. That's what this whole institute is about. Mm -hmm. In this institute, Arabs tell me when they come, they said they feel dignified. Mm -hmm. The workers feel dignified. No one pulls rank on another person. No thinker will ever be told that that's heretical, you can't say that. A total freedom of ideas, cross-cultural discussions with theologians, Muslims, Christians, philosophers, secularists. Come on, world, come inside. We want to meet you. In other words, strangely enough, Israel, which is so much more a family home, makes it possible to be more universal than living in Manhattan. Hmm. In other words, here, I meet people out of a sense of dignity. I have roots. I have a history. 
I can now meet your history. You're not denying my identity. Like when Arafat said, we were never there in Jerusalem. We never had anything to do with the temple. My anger was not, you know, that he was nasty. You denied my memory. Mm. And if you deny my memory, you deny my dignity. This is a return to memory. Now, how do we deal with this memory? Narcissistically? Triumphantly? Arrogantly? Or we say, now that I have my memory, tell me about yours. It's a different ballgame. I could listen now. I have a place. I could sit down and talk with you. I have no difficulty allowing another voice into my consciousness. And that's what Israel should be about. It's not about that. I don't want to lie to you. I I love Israel not for what it is, but what it could be. I want that to be known. Israel is a possibility. And I live with possibilities. Mm. I didn't close the final chapter. The final chapter of Jewish history is still going to be read. Still going to be written. And it's going to grow here. And it's my task as a teacher, a philosopher, to make it possible for more, more and more people to study, to understand. If you look at the seminar I'm giving on the meaning of a chosen people, mm. I want to deal with that honestly. Right. How, how do you understand the core of Jewish teaching or the God, the God you want to worship? How do you understand the uh, message that is there about pluralism, you know what? What is what is the what is the Jewish contribution to a truly pluralistic world that we live in now? The contribution is that there's no idea which ends the discussion. If there's an idea that closes the discussion, that's not a fruitful thought. Mm. Dialogue is what creates possibility for more discussion. Mm. And my tradition taught me when they said Hillel and Shammai were always fighting with each other and disagreeing. And they say, let's ask God who's right. Is it Hillel right or Shammai right? So God said, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. These and these are the words of the living God. So, I mean, God, I mean, you have a multiple conversation going on in yourself. And there's an old Midrash that says when he gave the Torah to Sinai, he gave it with multiple interpretations. There's never been a single truth, a dogmatic truth, a single way of reading reality. We, we meet reality through the visions of other people. And my tradition is filled with that. Hmm. The whole Talmud is that. Right. It's a demonstration of that. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be a Jew is to say, why are you right? (laughs) Right. You're going to have to explain to me. Right. (laughs) Right. And I'm going to argue with you. I love that in Judaism, too. I think um, I want to talk to you about time. Your your understanding of time, 
which I would even say palpably feels different here in Fun. Israel. Time. It feels, I mean, I'm just saying even, even, even being present in this land, it feels different. Now, you write about this. It comes up in your writing, not necessarily as an isolated subject, but um, I think in the sense that you, even when you talk about writing this, writing a new chapter of Jewish history, you experience that as a matter of generations, right? That you're, you're, you're part of what will be a long process, Right, and that um, uh, this, this, this also this process of applying tradition to modern society as that as even the meaning of what modern society is continues to change. Um, how do you how do you think about the value of time, the meaning of time, in terms of religious change, spiritual evolution within Judaism? There's the, there's the famous saying in the Mishnah, "Lo alecha hamalacha ligmo." It's not upon you to finish the job, <laughs> nor are you free to desist from it. And know one thing, that the master is very, very demanding. Hayom katzer, the day is short, but the work is great. I mean, in, if you went to my school, the major question was, how are you using your time? Hmm. What have you made of yourself in the gift that you've received? On one level, I hate time because it's moving. <laughs> I say, hold it, kid. I want to live a little longer. I, don't want, I, want, I want to be around. I love life. I love people. I don't know why. They're not so nice. <laughs> but I have that... F when I see a little kindness of somebody, and I see a tear in his eye, it opens me up. I need people to take me out of a locked room and let me breathe alternative pictures ah, interesting never thought of it that way right gee thank you do you mean that yes I mean that and you never thought of it like this no I didn't come on Professor Hartman you're joking with me I'm not joking with you please help me understand and if people could go through life feeling that there's a lot that they don't know. As James said, the whole truth has not been given to one person. It's enough to be true to the section that you have. To be true to the situation of where you are and what your existential situation enables you to see. And to see a world talking that way, listening, would be nice. Mm -hmm. No? Mm -hmm. Saying it that way also, I think, makes the task feel more manageable. Psychologically, it's a great comfort to think yes. about it that way. Yes, I do. 
We're going to pause for just a minute, change the tape, and then I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions. Is that all right? You can take a drink of water if Fine. you like. Okay. Okay. Boy, so many different people. <laughs> Hi, it's all. Okay. I've heard it all before. <laughs> <laughs> you know this story. <laughs> it's been a lot of time together. A lot of stories. These are good ones. Just tell me when. It's good stuff. Yeah, it's good stuff. She asks good questions. I do my so best. I wonder why they all admire you so much. I mean, the people saying, boy, you have to see her. She's just a remarkable person. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I well, get this again don't and believe again. That. Yeah, yeah, don't. <laughs> I shouldn't believe that. No, don't okay, believe Okay, I don't that. believe it. No. I ask good Cross questions. Cross it off, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> She's not remarkable. Do you know uh, Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, so yeah, Chief know. Rabbi Griffin? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, not my style. <laughs> He's well, he said. Let me. I want to ask you about something he says, which that he he says that um that we and we the modern world tends to look at the conservative uh, flanks of religions as the places that are more fixed and resistant to change, but that in fact, when real renewal comes to religions, it tends to come from the orthodox direction. And he, I think his point is because it is because it is because that is where people are taking the religion most seriously and working with it most seriously if they are. That's the problem. What they take seriously is what kills me. <laughs> <laughs> what worries them. But no, are, you're, you're over in that... You're, I'm, I'm not from... Mm-hmm. Institutional frameworks, mm-hmm. orthodoxy, conservative reform. I don't even know what that means. Right. I'm Duffy. <laughs> what? You're... I'm Duffy. That's my name, nickname. David Duffy. Mm. I like to teach, and I like to live with my people. I like Jews. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I need to get away. Sometimes. Mm. But my health doesn't allow it now. I wonder um, what comes to mind if I ask you. So you've started a lot of initiatives here. We've talked about some of them. You have a school. I mean, I've written some of this down. You're, you're, you're training girls. I mean, you're bringing women and girls into the tradition. You, um, you're, you're doing this spiritual teaching with military officers. Um, you're also bringing Jews and rabbis of different different Jewish traditions together in a way that's unprecedented, right? So I wonder what comes to mind if I ask you how then these experiences that you create out of your sense that something has to change, how they then give you and inform your vision, you know, teach you things that you didn't expect to learn, uh, give you new insights that are surprising, they tell me, they teach me that it's not easy. Mm. You know, then sometimes you can become very glib, especially a rabbi. Gets behind that pulpit and doesn't stop talking. 
doesn't that most of the congregation is sleeping. I mean, but that's that doesn't that doesn't phase him. You know. I don't see any dialogue in all the community. I, that's what I wanted to create was a people with discussion. That Saturday night they get together and they say, what did your rabbi say about Abraham? What did your rabbi say? How did he interpret this? And they should argue what they learned. Mm. But they don't do that. They talk, do you see the rabbi's wife, how she was dressed? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I want, I want a people that is... Learning. So you're saying even bringing together people in unlikely combinations doesn't, that there's still work to do to create the real engagement you're talking about. Absolutely. And the real... A real engagement. Mm-hmm. No, even with the rabbis that I work with or lay people or the army or educators, I want to engage them. Come on, what did you think about when you read this passage? I'm happily married. Come on, don't worry. <laughs> I'm not happily married. I just got divorced. <laughs> so I say, what's the matter with you? Come on, don't you have an idea? Does anything bother you in Judaism? Were you ever bothered by the fact that prayer seems meaningless? That maybe the most beautiful prayer is just silence? And the one should walk into a synagogue instead of hearing so many words that would be quiet. Wouldn't that be nice? Mm. So you'd have to start thinking. But what did the Jews do with the prayer book? <laughs> verbal diarrhea and they just they're just reading off and their souls are not there. Where are their souls? Where is your neshama? Where's the, where's the spirit that awakens you? Where's the spirit that wants you to search, find out? There's a passage in the Psalms. Yismach lev mevakshei Hashem. Joyful are those who seek God, not those who found God. I'm looking for Jews to be seekers. They're not anymore. I don't know what they are. It requires a great deal of me to close my eyes and love the imagined people. <laughs> Meet Charlie Buchholz and say, gee, there's, there's people whose minds are open. I'm, I don't want to romanticize Jews. I mean, but they're a tough people. But there are good people. You've um, you've written about, and I think this absolutely comes through that you you criticize Israel as a as a parent or Jews Jews as a parent, you know, engages with the child. It's a loving uh, criticism, and you've written that you're the criticizing aspects that the back, backdrop to this. I don't I don't think the word criticizing is good, but you know this this engagement is. Um, that the backdrop to that is daily joy and celebration. Is that? Would you say some more about, you know, how the the totality of this relationship you have, your ideas, what you find lacking, 
your sense of possibility? Well, I find lacking joy, depth, critical reflection, changing your mind, and not being scared to think new thoughts. That's what I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. And it ain't there. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine it's there. So I construct the Jewish people. <laughs> Who am I talking about? I remember, you know, my teacher taught me to ask my congregation for forgiveness if I didn't teach them Torah sufficiently. That was salvaging. Mm. So I took it very seriously, and I used to ask my congregation to forgive me for the times I didn't study with you. And I'd many times cry. And I'd look around at my congregation, half were sleeping. <laughs> because they overate in order for Yom Kippur so they shouldn't die of starvation. <laughs> they were like Auschwitz victims. Yeah. So he says, Hartman, who are you talking about? What are you talking about, the chosen people? What's chosen? You wrote, um, I propose that a core meaning of the state of Israel is precisely the will of the Jewish people to remain in history, despite overwhelming evidence of the risks involved. Tell me, tell me what you're saying there. Well, you know the risks. Yeah, I know the risks. <laughs> it's the staying in history. The staying here. We're vulnerable to Syria, Iran, Hezbollah. I mean, they don't tell me, send me love notes. They tell me that they're going to get new forms of destruction and they could wipe out Tel Aviv in a few hours. doesn't make me feel... I look at this institute. I worked so hard to build it. I had to raise all the money myself. My son, Daniel, now came and inherited the throne. But I worked very hard to build what I built. I don't want to lose it. (laughs) So I I always have these nightmares of bombs falling away here and telling Charlie, let's get underground quick. We have underground here. You're welcome to come. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's just, I don't know, it's the fragile quality of life drives me crazy today you're here today you smile today you make love and tomorrow you don't know what's going to be you know that non-consistency and a new king arose in Egypt who didn't know Joseph Mm -hmm. that's my vision of history No matter what you did, they forgot. Look what what we've contributed to civilization. Yeah, okay. But that's for yesterday's news. In, In terms of your own spiritual evolution how your sense of who God is has changed, what that means. What? Your sense of who God is has cha- changed and what that means. Are there... Um, My God wants me to be moral. Your God. So, so I wonder if there are biblical passages or Talmudic teachings, images 
that have become more important to you over yes. time, that are important now that maybe meant nothing to you 30 years right. ago? What would those be? Ones which are radically, radical revisions of the way you think about God. What do I mean that say that God is all-powerful? His power is that he doesn't punish the wicked. He's slow to anger. What do you mean that he's awe-inspiring in the temple? But there's no temple anymore. The pagans are just dancing around in the temple. Oh, it means something else. It means if not for the awe of God, this people wouldn't have survived in history. So there was a reshaping of the meaning of the theological language to correspond to a, a help, a hope, a help, a hopeless God. Mm. Where are you, God? Where are you hiding? So they tell the Hasidic story of the two kids were playing hide and seek. And one, one kid hid, and then he started crying. So they say, what's the matter? He says, no one is looking for me. <laughs> he says, now you know how God feels. <laughs> mm. We're not looking. I don't know what God is, the being of God. But I know it's a prayer. It's a shattering experience. It opens you to the world. It takes you out of your narcissistic ego trip and says, look, see the other. Show strength through compassion, through love, not through violence. And to be reminded each day of those achievements. Not simple. Hmm. It's not easy to be a religious man. I want to be religious. <laughs> I know I mentioned to you, Charlie, I want to be religious, but I can't find anyone who could make me religious. <laughs> who could inspire me to feel that it's worth it. But I'm still hoping. I'm still hoping. On my gravestone is going to be written, David Hartman, who wanted to be a good Jew. Okay. <laughs> he wanted to. I don't know if he was. Mm. Charlie says I'm good. Mm. Uh, uh, people think I'm crazy. What do you want, Hartman? Can't you finally accept reality? That's true. But what is reality? What is reality? Japan? Tsunami? You saw the... Did you see the wave? Yeah. yeah. Wow. I looked at it. And I said to my friend, you're worried about a house. You're worried about the furniture you're going to get. Yeah. Look at this movie. Look at tsunami. Look what happened to Japan. The most technologically advanced society. Right. right. 
look, look, and what do you get excited about? You didn't get the suit you wanted? You didn't get the pants you wanted? What do you want in light of that? How do you measure reality in light of that? That follows me all the time. Mm. I can't get that out of my mind. I want to watch the basketball game on TV, and I turn to Tsunami, to news, Nochamo, Nochamo. They show devastation and devastation. Maybe we have to see it again and again to know what we should celebrate mm. and what we should take ser seriously. Mm. It's, it, it's hard. It's hard to be an awakened human being. Most of the time we want to close our eyes and go to sleep or make love and just close your eyes. I think that's your last word. Is there anything else you'd like to talk no, about? No, I appreciate very much. Yeah. This was very enriching. Mm. Gee, I didn't realize I had so many ideas. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope you use it. Yeah. Because I remember they tell me we're going to have an in-depth interview. What does that mean? Three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we really mean it. <laughs> In depth. <laughs> no, I was very appreciative of the fact that you wanted to speak to me. And I see you did your homework. Wow. I did my homework, yeah. Wow, you see that? Yeah. That's what you meant, Charlie, right? <laughs> David, I, I first started breaking Shabbos to listen to... <laughs> Yossi told me That's that. true. That's a true story. What was that? I first started breaking Shabbos in New York because I accidentally set my alarm so that Krista's show came on Shabbos morning, and then the next week, I forgot to set my alarm, but I had to listen to it. So I started turning on the radio so I could listen to the show. Oh. <laughs> Krista, see what you do to I nice... I know, I know, I know. See what you do to nice Jewish boys. <laughs> No, I told Chelsea I, I was invited to speak at the Reform Judaism mm. conference in the States. It's huge. You know, 6,000 people and a lot of rabbis said, oh, yeah. you're part of my Shabbos ritual. <laughs> I thought, wow, that is really exciting. Yeah. Well, you're more interesting than prayer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was my turn. Yeah, you set the trap. I just walked in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, it's so... It's wonderful to not just interview you, but to be here, to be here. Here in Jerusalem and here at the center of the Institute. Where do you live? Minnesota. Minnesota? In the middle of nowhere, yes. Is that where um, the famous medical center? Oh, May, uh, yes, Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic. Mm -hmm. Is in Rochester. They used to have a good football team. The Vikings? Not anymore. Not anymore. Are you also from Minnesota? I am. We, we, we produce well we produce the show in Minnesota. I'm not from there originally, but I've, my kids are growing up there, so 
So you produce the show there. Mm -hmm. How long is this show going to run for? It's an hour-long program. It's a weekly hour-long program. Um, we're on 250 stations, 250 cities in the U.S., but we created in Minnesota. Tell the people to buy my book. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll mention the book. And I, it, it will be... Um, this is not going to be produced really quickly, so the book, I think, will be out by the time it's on the air, I think. Yeah. How long have you been doing this? Um, seven years as a weekly national show. Mm-hmm. And you might, like, you might appreciate this. Um, we, we started... When we started... I started the show, it was called Speaking of Faith. And I... I actually wanted to use the word faith because the word had been pretty much co-opted in American political life. Um, we've changed the title of the show recently to On Being. On Being. Being, yes. Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich. Well, because, because what we're really talking about is how, if this has relevance, if it means anything, it's in how you live your life, right? And what it means, how it, how it shapes our understanding of what it means to be human and how that continues to change over the course of a lifetime. Very good. National public television. Public radio. What does that mean, national? National public radio. It's, it's like the American BBC. It's not nearly as great as the BBC. As well, venerable BBC's as the BBC. Good. Yeah, but the BBC is. You're much BBC better. is venerable. NPR is not venerable, but it's pretty good. Very nice. Yeah. That first show that I listened to was the one about the truth and reconciliation. Oh, right. Even what you yeah. were saying about how it plays out in life. Yeah. It was, it was like, I couldn't believe what I was, I, I just couldn't believe the leaps that people were making. All the theology that went on in that. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, that people were actually like, okay, we will change our entire culture and society. Right. Because of these ideas. Yeah. You also in the... Yeah. We did it. Did you hear the show we did on Heschel? What am I supposed to do? That, that was really exciting to, to do. Where? Uh, Ar- Arnold Eisen. Oh, nice. Okay. We didn't plan just to have it be one voice. We also have the voice of Heschel coming in. It's incredible. But uh, I just had this interview with Arnie Eisen, who, because what we wanted to talk about is how Heschel... Not not a biography, but how this these ideas and this legacy lives on in a modern life. And so he, our Eisen had taught Heschel at Stanford, and now he's head of JTS. And he just brought him to life. And also how he he met Heschel when uh, he was young, and the impression that that had on him. So it, we, he just turned out to be a good carrier for that story, and kind of bring it into the present. And then. And then hearing Heschel's voice was amazing. And where did you yeah, I loved where Heschel. Were the, oh. Where were the Heschel clips from? Um, the old TV interview that he did? The, the one from the old yeah. TV interview. Yeah. That was, that was and another... There's, like, there's an old TV interview of him, I think, from like the 70s. He did a really amazing interview. We had another clip. We can send you a CD of that. We can send that to you. Okay, yeah. And you can listen to it that way. Some, let's make he a was note. a remarkable person. He He's was the best. As, uh, I wrote about I him. him. I know he comes up. The reason I thought of him is uh, that Niebuhr was so important in the truth right. and reconciliation mission. Right. But 
Heschel was as great as Niebuhr, but he's not remembered with that same vigor. And whenever we put that show on the air, um, we get a lot of Jewish people writing in and saying, I never heard of this guy. I never heard of him. He's amazing. Why, haven't I, why have I not read him? And they just remember him walking he, with Luther King. Yeah. Yeah. Fade will forget walk. if we don't it's write it down somewhere. Oh, here's my. It's a shame there's not more recorded of him talking. There's not, and oh, what was it that we really <coughs> wanted? What was it we couldn't get audio of? He, are you all right, Trent? Yeah, it was a certain um, NBC. And though that, but didn't he speak? What was the thing about the rabbis singing? We sh- when when King he invited Martin Luther King to speak, speak to the gathering yeah. of, sh- of conservative rabbis, yeah. and they sang "We Shall Overcome" in Hebrew, yeah. and nobody record. And then a week yeah. later, King was dead, oh, God. Oh, and it wasn't. And we were as audio people. I just you know what what we would all give to have a recording of that. Um, I'm going to make a note to send that to you, too. So we What's that? Send you this, the Heschel CD. I think I may have sent it to Yossi. Is there, I, my daughter has a, a record of Luther King's speeches. Yeah. I loved them. Yeah. I gave the eulogy in my shul when he died. And many of the conservative members of the congregation were very scared. We had a demonstration of walking in the streets of Montreal. Yeah. And you have to know Montreal. That's conservative, shepherd conservative. Uh, you know, every rabbi had to wear a black gown. I'd never wear it. Never, never wore the uniform striped pants. And Daniil used to sit on my lap. <laughs> mm. In fact, I, I one time was saw when I was speaking, the congregation was laughing. I couldn't understand. I didn't say anything funny until I turned around. Daniil was doing all my movements. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he learned from his father. Yeah. Is he a yeah. rabbi? Yeah. Yeah, I ordained him. He's very good. He's running the institution mm-hmm. now. We're in his office, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> I'm aware of that. <laughs> That's his mother's paintings. So are we going to... B.H. Yeah. We should probably do that. Are you the producer of this um, weekly thing? We're all producers, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris is our technical director. Trent is our senior editor and our, our online, the internet uh, genius. What does online mean? The Webs, the web. I don't know what that means either. Uh, computer, you can access the world. You know I, I don't know how to use a computer. <laughs> Would you believe it? I don't know how to use a computer. Oh, is that right? I'm still getting used to a telephone. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> That's an exaggeration, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't take away from the fact that you do not have a computer at your house. That is true. I, I respect that. 
I I'm envy you. I know. <laughs> and Nancy is also a producer. Oh, very nice. Boy, it's a big outfit. It takes, it takes a few people to throw this thing together. Yeah. It seems that way. So you think you could use some of my stuff? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You an hour all yourself? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll let you know what's going on. We'll keep you informed. But it is going to be a few weeks. We have a, going back with a lot. It could be a couple months. When it runs on Saturday morning? No, it runs in different places at different times. It, it's actually not on in New York. Um, early. It used to be on Saturdays at 7 in New York, and now it's on Sundays at 7. But it's also on Saturday at 3, which is the other time. And it's on Sunday night. But in other places, it's on... Uh, no, know. I remember that, that people had a lot of respect for national public radio. Mm-hmm. Independent. Mm-hmm. Very nice. We even have listeners here, people who write to us. We yes. listen to the program on the computer. Mm-hmm. We'll send you a copy of it. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I'd appreciate that. CD player? CD player? Yeah. No? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> All the music. That's where the music comes from. Yeah. Oh, the CD so I have in the house? I can, we can send you a CD or two, and you'll be able to play it. You'll be able to listen to the show on CD. CD? I, I think I have a CD. That's those things that you're pushing. <laughs> and it comes out on the television. Set. You can see how worldly I am. I know my little grandchildren, they come and they just run it off like mad. I can't, they tell me emails. I don't know what the heck that means. With messages over computers, over things. Mm-hmm. All my children have that. Grandchildren, little ones. Mm-hmm. And the great grandfather. I, I have already great great grandchildren. Really? Great mm. great ah. or just great? What? I have from Daniil. Daniil has great. Oh, you're right. Great, great. Daniil's daughter had a baby girl, and Tova's daughter yeah, has. That's just great. Yeah, great. it's great. Yeah. Yeah. they call it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have around 15, 16 grandchildren. Congratulations. You worry more. Who, who interviews you? Do you ever get interviewed? Oh. Sometimes silly things, nothing. Yeah, I got to be, uh, Yeah, I do get interviewed, but it's well. If I, it's sometimes in connection with if I'm doing, if I'm speaking somewhere, I might get interviewed by the local paper or. So how was your meeting with Reform Rabbis? Hmm? You spoke for Reform Rabbis. It was. It was a couple of years ago. It was fine. It was a huge gathering. It was just a huge gathering. Some of them are very weak. It's a pity. You know, the difference between... Um, it, I, th- I think I noticed this difference with the Jewish audience, because I, I tend to have just mixed audiences. And um, one thing I noticed was uh, I spoke, and also there was, it wasn't very organized in terms of how the Q&A would happen. Sometimes if... Sometimes there's a microphone and you have to go up and take the microphone or you submit questions. But in this case, it was just a free-for-all. <laughs>